0: Welcome to a world where mysteries still exist. Come into the room. I'm sure you notice the nicely polished wood, the shelves full of books. Some are recognized old favorites, some are unusual and ancient looking. The smell is one of smoke, tobacco, and leather. Pull up a chair next to the fire. Pour yourself a drink. I have a fully stocked bar with all of your favorites. Now let's share it with one another as we spend time in the study. That you guys got to join me this month to listen in to the podcast, and I'm happy that I was able to get it out there a little bit early for everyone before Halloween. I've got a very, very busy schedule lately, and uh, I'll kind of let you in on it. I've been working all month and longer than that, actually, ever since the summer towards the launch of Alchemy Moon. Unfortunately, I'm having to wait on a printer, so as I'm recording this, I have seven days before I, well now six days before I step onto an airplane, and I still do not have any complete product. I need that product to take to my invention with me, so a little bit of stress, a little bit of strain. Then I get to stay at my invention for a few days. I'm really looking forward to that, not only for the just wonderful time that the convention is, but also meeting some people that I've met online, but never in person. And I think even more exciting is I am taking my neighbor with me. My neighbor has never been on an airplane and has never left the state. His first trip on a plane and to leave the state is going to Las Vegas. I think he's going to have a blast. And even if he doesn't, I know that I sure will. Then I leave from Las Vegas and fly directly to Arizona, where I stay for the remainder of the week and then leave on the weekend for Sedona and then fly back to Arkansas. I get a one-week break before I have to perform my theater show in downtown Little Rock, so I have a lot going on. Um, I kept this relatively short because, frankly, you might not care about what's going on in my personal life, but hey, it is my podcast, so I thought I'd share a little bit with you. Now let's get on with the program. Oh, fruit loved a boyhood, the old days recalling, when wood grapes were purpling and brown nuts were falling, when wild, ugly faces we carved in its skin, flaring out through the dark with a candle within. Well, I'm so glad you joined me for the end of poetry time around the fire, it's nice to see you here. The days are getting shorter. Darkness now lasts much longer. This is the time of year where performers of the spooky persuasion can revel in their strangeness and hopefully capitalize on the season by filling up their scheduled books with lots of performances. Even those of you listening who are not performers no doubt enjoy this time of year and receive fewer odd looks when you pull out your strange props and tell your demented stories. All bizarrists have to love Halloween. In the midst of all the activity though, I want you to take this time to relax. As you're listening to my voice, I want you to just close your eyes for a minute, unless you happen to be driving a car, in which case do not close your eyes. I don't want to be responsible for any type of an accident. If you're somewhere where you can relax though, just close your eyes and take a trip back to the time when you were a child. Think back to this time of year. It was always my favorite time of year and still is. I couldn't wait to get out of school because I knew that I had less time to play outside because once the street lights came on, well, that's when I had to go back in the house. Summer was gone and the darkness came much quicker. There was a little bit of coolness in the air. For me, living in the South, it wasn't cold and coolness really meant anything below 90 degrees, but at least you could play outside without getting completely sweaty. Football was starting. Your friends would play pickup games to tackle football in the backyard. You'd come home with grass stains all over your knees and some skinned-up elbows. But there were also bigger things coming. Fall meant harvest time. It meant that farmers were picking their crops. Jams, jellies, and pies were being made. Pumpkin patches were having their festivals. All of this had to be showed off to the community. And where better to show it off than the county and state fairs? Oh, the caramel apples, the cotton candy, the Ferris wheel, the zipper and the cyclone, the fun houses and the sideshow, Spidora, the high strikers. I could go on and on thinking about all of that fun stuff. The fair meant that it was the real start of the fall. And then you had Halloween night. I mean, who could forget that? But not just Halloween night, but all the time leading up to it. All week in school, you could make paper pumpkins and tissue ghosts. Black cats and witches were cut out from construction paper. Spooky stories were told. You knew which houses to avoid, and you were warned of the dangers of the razor blade riddled candies and apples. Horror movies were on all week on almost every channel. Even if mom and dad wouldn't let you watch horror movies, you could always sneak some in around Halloween time. And then Halloween night itself, roaming from house to house, saying trick or treat, and having permission to eat all of the candy you could handle, and still coming home with a hoard that would last you for weeks. You could trade candy with your friends and try to keep your parents from eating all the good stuff. But just because Halloween was over didn't mean the season was, though. As the nights got cooler and longer, it was time for bonfires and hayrides, the cool crisp air on your back while your face was warm by the fire. Then when it was time for the hayride, you could burrow down in the hay and get close to that one you had the crush on. Maybe steal a kiss in the dark, maybe something more. Well I hope that I was able to take you back to some of the things that made this season so enjoyable for me, and maybe some of that stuff resonated with you as well. All of these things are why I love the fall, and particularly Halloween. I love the spooky and horrific aspects of Halloween, and I always have. I love the carnivals and the fairs, and I always have. But they have those their disturbing sides too, and I want to tap into this feeling when I perform for someone. What made Halloween magical for them? What made Halloween magical for you? If you can touch on this, then you can evoke some real emotion from your spectators. Think about why you love the season and try to convey that same thing to your audience members. Thanks for taking that little journey with me and I hope that you have a wonderful Halloween. So recently I had a friend of mine ask me what my top picks were for my favorite books that revolve around bizarre magic. Now that's really something that's hard to do. Um, I had to try to narrow it down to five books, the top five books. Now the top four were pretty easy, but after that it really became more difficult to pick that fifth book, the one I just couldn't do without. And I thought that this question might be something that's useful to those who are new to bizarre or even those who may have missed some of the older books. Uh, So I wanted to go ahead and kind of recap my response for the podcast. Now one of the other common questions you often get is why do you recommend that book? So I want to address that briefly as well. The first few basically should come as no surprise to anyone. They aren't tomes that are unique to Bizarre Magic. In fact, they are mentalism books. But so much of mentalism forms a basis for Bizarre Magic. It just seems like they fit hand in hand. That, and also the fact that I'm a big fan of mentalism anyways, so long as it has that special something extra. I don't want to just figure out someone's number, but anyway, that's that's a whole different topic. Let's get to my top five books. The first on my list is Practical Mental Magic by Animan. If you don't have this, then you're missing out on a major source of inspiration. It's jam-packed full of ideas. It's, it's things that are, are usable for mentalists and for bizarre magicians for everyone i really like it because animan is very clever and he's direct and unique in his methods They're i say unique now they they seem like they're part of just the the general knowledge of mentalism but a lot of those things came from animan and i really really enjoy practical mental magic i've gone through probably three copies of it my copies keep falling apart and i keep buying new ones so that's probably the top one on my list. I, could, I go back and read it again and again, and we continue to do so. Now the next on the list is 13 Steps to Mentalism. This is basically the Bible of mentalism. If there's anything you want to know, get this book. I mean, if you have practical mental magic in 13 steps, to me, you have everything you need for a lifetime of mentalism but you know the approach is bizarre not just mentalism so to me these two books give you the tools and that's really uh, something that you need a firm grounding in. obviously but by the time most people make their way to bizarre generally they do have a grounding and hopefully they have these two books the next one on my list is mind myth and magic and I know that book is probably overlooked by some when you look at how thick that book is it is just absolutely packed with ideas. And to me, it is the most value-packed tome of workable ideas and information that you can find out there. Something else that I particularly enjoyed about Mind, Myth, and Magic, and still like and go back to time and again, is the fact that it is very well annotated. They tell you the source of the ideas and kind of all the permutations of the idea before Waters worked with it. Also Mind Myth and Magic is a collection of his work that was compiled over decades. So you have a lot of of thinking that kind of changed with the times and you can kind of read the the growth I guess of Waters although the stuff at the beginning's every bit as good as the stuff at the end. It's just a wonderful book. Highly recommend it. The next one on my list is oh and before I get there Mind Myth and Magic to me is where you start seeing a melding of those two ideas. And what I mean is the the tools and the presentation. Now, the next books after that are purely presentation. Not to say they don't have good workable ideas as well, but the inspiration for me in these books was not here's how you do a trick. It was the way that you thought about presentation of a routine. And the next book on my list is The Dark Waltz. I have covered this book, reviewed it on a previous podcast. I think it's absolutely wonderful. You can get it online at library.com. If you don't have it and you're interested in bizarre, go buy the book. I love the way it's written. I love the style of it. I'll admit at times, for me, it's uh, the, the style's a little more melodramatic maybe than what I'm into. I tend to be more straightforward, but I don't mean that as a criticism at all. When I read The Dark Waltz, that was the book to me that really just hooked me on Bizarre Magic. I'd read other things and I liked them okay, but that's the one that really just, it was it for me. I realized this is what it's about and I love it. Now, number five, this is where it gets really hard. Um, Two of the books I'm going to mention, I've got a three way tie for number five. Two of the books that I'm going to mention, I have also reviewed on previous podcasts. The first one is uh, The Practitioner by Eugene Points. His writing is the best, bar none, the tops. It's the best. Um, My understanding is that he was a writer professionally, and that's probably why his stuff is so good. He has a story that he weaves throughout the book that isn't magic, it's just really good and very entertaining. But his routines are clever, original, his writing style is very different. I just can't recommend it enough, I I wish that we had more of his stuff and I think it's a real shame that we lost Eugene years ago and uh, I think it's just a major blow to Bizarre Magic. The next one, especially if you're new to Bizarre, you may not have heard of this one but it's Voodoo Magic by Getty Nebo, hopefully I pronounced all that right, Uh, it's a book when you read it you're not sure whether he's written routines with made-up stories to fit tricks or whether he's telling true stories he is a voodoo practitioner and he tells you about the things that he saw and experienced, the things that his teacher did the things he experienced in Haiti it's uh, it's, it's good you sit and wonder if these stories are real And you realize how real this type of magic can be. That it's not boxes and streamers and glitter and sparkly jumpsuits and all that. That this stuff can really touch people and it can be very powerful and very real. Highly recommend the book. The last one that I have is Garden of the Strange. This one it seems like people either loved it or hated it. It's one again that I I reviewed on a previous podcast. I did enjoy it quite a bit. I thought the way that he wrote the stories that he told were incredible and very inspiring and I highly recommend that you go check it out if you want to think about where bizarre magic can be pushed into a lot of the ideas might not work for you they might not be workable for you but it will make you think about the direction that you can take your magic so that's my review of my top five actually top eight books and um You know, check them out if you don't have them. I think that they're all good books, and I think you'll get something out of all of them. Thanks. Now, if you've listened to the podcast, you know that each month we have a little advertising section, and this month is going to be no different. Now, typically I'm advertising the things that I create, but now there's a little bit of a shift. There's a change, and the waxing of the moon is imminent. Alchemy Moon will go live this month on October 31st at midnight. Now, my partner Chris Gould is in England, and that midnight is midnight in England. So all of my friends on this side of the pond will get a jump start on Alchemy Moon products. You'll get to see them before people on the other side of the world will. So what do we have in store for you? First, Chris has some interesting family members. His grandfather and my aunt were like peas in a pod, but a generation different and across the sea. Perhaps they had some kind of a connection somehow. Surely they could have met, though. I don't know. We do have some tools of the trade, so to speak, that Chris's grandfather would have used. He had a diary, for lack of a better word. It did hold some strange objects. There were no pages, per se, but there was information. Strange scribbling. Leaves that may have been lost or replaced. The power that resided in the covers bore testament to the great power that was held within. He was keenly interested in alchemy, or so it appeared. The cards that he left were well careful, though old. They had scribbles on them and images, pictures. They seemed to tell a lot about the future and about the past. They opened a portal, it seemed, between the user and the person they were speaking to. Mental images could be shared, fortunes told. They were beautiful, and they could be yours. Chris also came across something very odd. I'm not sure I got the story right, so I apologize to him in advance if I if I didn't hear it all. But I believe he said there was an estate sale or some such thing, and there were photographs he found. Strange, strange pictures. It was a a, a collection of uh, photos, perhaps. I think it was a family. I think that's what he said. But frankly, it's all a, a blur. Maybe I was drinking that night, Chris and I spoke. Maybe he was. I'm not sure, but I think it was family, family portraits. I think you said there was a family or two, or, or maybe even more. One was happy, two were happy, the others not so much. He immediately saw a connection between them, a pattern, and he passed them on to me. I can see the same, and I think you will as well. We also have some nice pieces that we created both individually prior to our partnership. Zoltar will be available, as well as the cuss Cards King Edition. These are things that people have asked about, and yes, they will be for sale. Death and the Family will also be available. The Secret Key, The Witch of Glastonbury, and Fate and Free Will will all be available as well. So all of those things you could get previously from me or Alchemy Moon individually will now be available all in one place. And for you collectors out there, there will be five sets left of the Elite cuss Cards. That is it, and after that, they're gone, so make sure you get in there and take a look at it. Uh, keep an eye out on, on Alchemy Moon for the launch on October 31st, 2011, but if you don't want to wait that long to find out what's going on, you don't have to. Pop over to the Magic Cafe and look there, there is a, a link uh, to some of the photos that are preview items, we, we have an ad there and you'll see the Alchemy Moon ad also Chris has been posting there about how you can get an inside look at the wiki and some of the other information that we have available also Alchemy Moon has a Facebook page please go over to the Alchemy Moon Facebook page and like us and we've been having a fun little contest over there that I think you will enjoy the winner of the contest will win some Alchemy Moon products we're also going to be at my and if you're gonna be out there please do stop by and say hello we will also be giving away some items at my invention as well. Um, In the meantime, as far as my items go, they are still available on my website at paulprater.com. Don't hesitate to pop over there and purchase something in time for Halloween if you would like. And if you have any questions, feel free to email me. More information will be available the closer we get to Halloween. We hope to see you all there on the date of the launch. Ah, uh, yes, Halloween time of the year. Many of my friends like to do seance routines, and they're undoubtedly more popular this time of the year. So I wanted to give you a little something fun that had to do with seance. Now what this is, it's there's going to be a link on my website that will lead you to an entire Uh, file of the Harry Houdini seance, the last Harry Houdini seance, and you can listen to the whole thing. I won't explain a whole lot about it here. Instead, I'm going to play some of the audio that gives you the introduction. Then if you like what you hear, you can pop over to my website at paulprater.com, and you can listen to the entire seance by visiting the link that I have up there. I hope you enjoy it. Houdini, the greatest showman that
1: ever walked this earth died October thirty first, 1926. Prior to his death, he was seeking out and exposing fraudulent spirit mediums. He boasted that there was nothing that a spirit medium could produce by way of alleged psychic phenomena that he could not reproduce by trickery. Despite this, he took no chances. He and his wife, the late Beatrice Hodini, resolved between them that whichever one died before the other that one would try to contact the survivor. They further agreed upon a secret code. This was decided upon to prevent fraudulent mediums or magicians from claiming that they were able to contact either one of the Houdinis. It was further agreed that the survivor would use every type of conceivable séance to contact the deceased, that, once each year, on the anniversary of the death, the survivor would hold a small gathering of friends, so that some message might possibly be heard. All attempts were to be discontinued after ten years. Houdini died first. His widow did not succumb until 1942. For nine years after Harry Houdini's death, she tried to reach him. Once she seemed to believe that Arthur Ford, the celebrated spirit medium, had actually reached her husband. Later she decided she had been mistaken that Mr. Ford had not received the real code message. There were, during those years, almost daily reports of Houdini's spirit visiting mediums all over the world, but not a single instance could actually be proven. It is notable, however, that Houdini definitely did not contact the one living person he had loved most, his wife. Thus it went till October 31, 1936, This was the tenth anniversary of Harry Houdini's death. After this date, Mrs. Houdini was to stop searching. The tenth seance was to be the final one. In charge of arrangements was the late Dr. Edward Saint, an old-time showman and Mrs. Houdini's business advisor. Dr. Saint decided the affair should achieve epic proportion and proceeded accordingly. The roof of the Knickerbocker Hotel in Hollywood, California was rented for the occasion. Now, the Knickerbocker is just about one block from the intersection of Hollywood and Vine, the movie capital's most fabulous streets. A bleacher-like seating arrangement was built which could accommodate about 300 people, and fully this many were invited by engraved invitations. Sound equipment and a special lighting system was installed. Seats for the inner circle were arranged directly in front of the bleachers. As early as 7 o'clock in the evening, the invited guests began to assemble people from all walks of life, but chiefly magicians, spiritualists, newspapermen, and others who had special interest in the affair. Up there on that roof it was uncommonly cold. The sky above was clear and bright, with the stars shining brilliantly. It was so cold that most of the invited guests were actually chilled. Making up the inner circle were Mrs. Houdini and Dr. Edward Saint, the Honorable Charles Frickie, a judge of the California high courts, two newspapermen, a past president of the California Spiritualist Organization, a member of the American Institute of Psychic Research, Herward Carrington, and two magicians. One of the magicians was Carol Fleming, then president of the Pacific Coast Association of Magicians, and the other was a publisher of a magazine devoted to the concerns of the conjurers. William W. Larson, Sr. On a table in front of Mrs. Houdini and Dr. Saint was a small altar bearing a picture of Houdini. Over the table, a tiny light which had burned for ten years. On a low stand in the center of the inner circle was a small table. On it was located a pistol loaded with blank cartridges, a tambourine, a locked pair of handcuffs which had never been unlocked since Houdini's death, a slate, a bit of chalk, a large bell, and a trumpet. In addition to manifesting himself to Mrs. Houdini via the secret code, Harry Houdini's spirit was to be prevailed upon to shoot the gun, unlock the cuffs, talk through the trumpet, and so on through the list of objects. Such were the proposed tests. Now it seems that Dr. Digellini, a well-known West Coast mystery worker, and a few other outstanding magicians didn't really believe that anything was going to happen. They feared that the invited guests and the waiting world were doomed to bitter disappointment and possible disillusionment. So they offered their services to help better matters. It would be excellent, they told Dr. Saint, to get Houdini's handwriting on the slate, and they could assure its appearance there, or to cause a dove to fly up from the center of the table, seemingly created out of nothing. Dr. Saint wisely refused these generous offers. The séance was to be conducted on a strictly legitimate basis. The tricks of the conjurers were taboo. Promptly at eight o'clock began the regal music of Pomp and Circumstance. This was the last music that Houdini ever used. He had always opened and closed his act with this music. Here is the actual voice of Dr. Edward Saint recorded during the séance on that memorable night, October 31st,
0: 1936 I've had some fun in these podcasts reviewing things that aren't necessarily magic related and I'm going to do the same thing again this month since it is October I thought that I would do a movie and of course it has to be a horror movie right after all it's October now I'm going to be honest here I've never been a huge fan of horror movies I know that'll probably get me exiled from the bizarre community. I mean, how can I be a bizarreist and not be into horror movies? Well, to be honest, as a whole, I'm not really into movies in general. However, with horror movies in particular, a lot of them don't have a good plot line or writing that really catches my interest. That's my biggest issue with a lot of horror movies. However, I did come across one a while back, and I thought that Halloween would be a good time to review it now you can moan and groan if you would like but the movie is jennifer's body i don't know if you've seen it if not i recommend it but let me tell you a little bit about it first so that at least you know what to expect i will say i suspect that some uh... real horror movie aficionados probably don't like this movie but i enjoyed it the basic plot is that there's a mousy girl who is the school nerd who has a super hot cheerleader friend played by megan fox the hot friend gets into trouble despite the nerdy girl warning her Hmm. mmm does that sound like a rehash plot yes it is it's it's nothing new or original the hot friend has a run-in with a band that turns her into a flesh-eating demon monster thing that needs fresh blood to survive so that's that's the basic plot so I said that I don't like a lot of horror movies because they don't have good plot lines or writing that really catches my interest Well, I'll tell you why I like this one. I'll start by admitting that this probably does sound like something you may have seen before. Yeah, I also know that Jennifer's body got panned by a fair number of critics, but it's everything that I would look for in a horror movie. First, let's start with the fact that the star is Megan Fox. Okay, that's really where I end to. Enough on that point. Secondly, I love that the movie never takes itself too seriously. It's campy and fun, and it's meant to be that way. It's written that way. The first time I watched it, I liked the dialogue and the writing style, but something seemed a little off about it. It was it was kind of strange. Then I discovered that it was written by Diablo Cody, who is the same woman who wrote Juno. Now, I absolutely loved Juno, but I thought it also had some awkward dialogue. I, I think that's just her style of writing. And it's, it's clever and witty, but it's also stilted and awkward and not a very natural speaking style. But third, I like the entire plot. If you're looking for something deep, thought-provoking, really interesting and different, or even seriously scary, then skip it. The entire plot of the movie is pretty silly, but yet it's thoroughly enjoyable. I won't tell you exactly what happens because I don't want to ruin it. However, it's a typical high school drama mixed in with a blood-sucking demon who also happens to be hot I looked at some other critic reviews of the movie and some people described it as a horror version of Mean Girls and I will admit that I liked Mean Girls as well sorry I'm just gonna say it I thought it was a funny movie okay so back to Megan Fox she and Amanda Seyfried Seyfried I'm not sure how to say her name so excuse me for not saying it right They have a scene where they make out, so, you know, there's a plus. There's also a scene where a song from my favorite band, The Sword, is playing. They're a band that I actually reviewed in an earlier podcast. I love The Sword. I love their music. And in this scene, Megan Fox is skinny dipping in a lake to wash off blood from a recent kill. My favorite song from The Sword is playing, and Megan Fox is coming out of the water in slow motion, water running down her face, wet hair slicked back. Okay, do you want to see the movie now? Go check out my website paulprater.com and I actually have a link to a trailer so you can see a trailer for the movie and make your own decision. I enjoyed it, I think it's well worth your time and I recommend you check out Jennifer's Body. This past month I had the good fortune of making a trip up to Eureka Springs with my wife and while we were there we went to see Intrigue Theater. In fact I must confess that the whole purpose of my trip was actually to go see Intrigue Theater. This is a show that's put on by Sean Paul and his wife Julianne, and um, it's the Ghost Have Answers is the name that they've used as well as Intrigue Theater. So I was curious to see what exactly I was going to see when I went to the show. It's built as part of it being uh, old-time Victorian-style conjuring as well as some séance ghost show type activity. So I wasn't sure exactly what to expect when I went to see the show. First of all, I would like to talk about their theater that they have. They're in the auditorium in Eureka Springs, and the auditorium is simply beautiful. For someone trying to recreate a magic show of the Victorian period, I can't think of a much better place. I do have a link on my web page to some pictures, or a picture, I should say, of the auditorium that I took. It's a lovely auditorium and an absolutely wonderful place. So that sets the scene as soon as you arrive. And also, just a bit of background about Eureka Springs. It's a city rich in tales and rich in history. It's a very unusual place. It's a very artsy community, and it's a really good place, I think, for a magic show as well so i've talked about that the the theater as you step into it now i want to get into the show the show itself starts with more or less straightforward conjuring routines the thing that i noticed almost immediately about the show is that it was being performed by real professionals there were no doubt about that when you see sean paul step on the stage she instantly takes command of the stage and you know that this is something he's done before. You know that he's well rehearsed and well polished. I say that and also want to point out that this was the first night that they were doing their show in this new auditorium that outgrown the hotel or the bed and breakfast where they were doing their show before and had moved into the auditorium. Despite the fact that it was their first night performing there, everything looked very smooth to me and it looked very nice. Now, in the first half, as I say, there were some pretty straightforward conjuring routines. Um, There's even an illusion, believe that or not. And uh, I thought it went over very well. And in fact, my wife said it was her favorite part of the show. Uh, That's something that my wife would be more into than, than I would be. However, all of it, as I said, was polished. It was very good and very entertaining. They had an intermission and then the second half is the part that would probably interest more of you bizarre magicians and the thing that interested me, and this was the um, the the spook show seance ghost show portion of it. I, I don't know what the best way is to describe it. I've heard and read about the old spook shows and I suppose it could be somewhat akin to those, only it's not cheesy or hokey or over the top like it seems like a lot of those were also it's not a straightforward seance because it is being performed on a stage and they're not necessarily invoking the spirits although they do at one point let me describe more what you see and i can let you make your own determination as to what type of show it is exactly they have a spirit cabinet routine that's obviously very well rehearsed and very well timed I will say, for those of you who are familiar with these routines, it's it's nothing um, nothing out of the ordinary, but very good. They do use some audience members, and they also use a prop that some of us are probably familiar with. They use the spirit slates that Dan Baines makes at Lebanon Circle. So it was nice to uh, to see those in use. Now, out in the audience, for those of us like me who are familiar with that prop, I was waiting to to hear the sound. And, of course, when you're on stage, I'm sure that person can hear it. And, in fact, she did. But in the audience, you miss out on that sound. That's, that's one of the things that, unfortunately, does not translate to the stage. Now, the size of the slates and the fact that the spectator heard it to me are more than good enough because it, then it made the entire audience believe that a sound was made. And uh, there were some interesting revelations that happened with the spirit cabinet, personal information that no one could know, and I really enjoyed that aspect of it. Um, there was also a, uh, a blindfold, I shouldn't say a blindfold routine, but Julianne was blindfolded and the spirits gave her answers to items that Sean Paul was holding in his hand that he got from audience members. That was a lot of fun and uh, I think the audience enjoyed it. It really afforded the opportunity to inject some humor into a darker portion of the show. Um... They also called someone on stage and made use of a spirit board. That spirit board was also a familiar device to someone familiar with the props, and it was dark board from Outlaw that was used. At the end, there was a call for an appearance of all of the spirits, and basically all hell broke loose on stage. It was very dramatic and... um, I think probably just right for a magic show on stage now as a seance per se it would have been too much the idea of less is more was definitely not applied in this situation nor am I saying it should be because this was a staged magic show now what was interesting is I hung around because I had contacted Sean Paul earlier to see if we could meet up and maybe get a drink or two afterwards and chat a little bit so I hung back and listened to people now bizarrest, those of you trying to make a certain feel when you perform, listen to this. This was very eye-opening to me. This was very clearly a magic show. There were no two ways about it. There was a stage illusion, for goodness sakes. It was clear it was a magic show. When that girl was on stage and had dark board and the planchette flew off the dark board, she visibly reacted. As people are talking to Sean Paul and others are waiting to talk, I am listening to a guy ask the girl, "Did you feel anything? Was there was there cold air? Did you did you feel the spirit? Did something something let you know what was going to happen? What did you feel?" These are people that are in awe of what they saw in a magic show. If we can get that kind of reaction at a magic show, then think what you could do in something like A seance, something where you can have more intimacy and more control and make people wonder whether what you're doing is just a magic trick. Now, I'm not saying that Sean Paul said this is all a magic trick because he clearly didn't do that, but you would think that the setup and structure would allow people to realize that it was. Then again, Sean Paul and Julianne did an excellent job and they probably did a good enough job, or I shouldn't say probably, they clearly did a good enough job. That people believe that what they saw was actually real. All in all, I thought the show was wonderful. It was a lot of fun. It was a show done by real professionals. There was no doubt about that. And I look forward to the opportunity of going back. I know now they're working on a voodoo routine and something regarding uh, witches as well. And we discussed a little bit of that when we had the opportunity to go and meet up for drinks. I would highly recommend that you go see the show. I have a link to their page on my page, so you can go check it out and see more information about it. They have a little video trailer up there as well, and um, go see it. That's what I've got to say, and uh, right after this, I'm also going to follow this up with an interview that I was lucky enough to get from Sean Paul. I hope you enjoy that as well. All right. I'm sitting here on the fourth floor of the Crescent Hotel in a bar. Very place. That's right. A, a very haunted place. We're having a good time tonight. And I just came back from Intrigue Theater, which was a wonderful show. I'm going to be doing a review of that on the podcast as well. But I'm sitting here with the stars from the show. We've got Sean Paul and Julianne. And I want to ask, when did you start performing Magic Professionally?
2: Um, well, I was uh, I was actually the uh, youngest performer at the Minnesota Renaissance Fair when I was 11 years old on the scheduled stages. I was on the grid, as they say, without parental supervision. It was just me and my brother. And uh, I don't know, is that professional? I mean, I so. it, that it was it was a big deal back in the day. I, I it's really I really have never ever had a real job so. <laughs> That's it. Uh, my wife has. She was a private investigator and uh, a dancer for the Minnesota Timberwolves, and right. then and then and then she entered a life of magic. So,
0: so how did you two meet up and start performing together? Wow. All
2: right. Well, um, I put an ad in the paper. One looking. You know, I, I had my theme park show, uh, and I was looking for a girl that looks like Barbie and has uh, dance, dance experience and she called and we met at the mall of america for an interview and and i was i was very impressed and then we found out that she used to teach at the at the dancer studio for ballroom dancing and so did i and she ended up going there and working there like 2 weeks after i had quit and moved on to something else so we our paths almost uh, crossed what was it 5 years earlier or something like that 5 years earlier uh so we, we thought it was destiny. Oh, missed by two weeks. We missed by about two weeks, that's right. And then uh, we, we did uh, that summer magic show at Valley Fair back in 95, and then we ended up doing um, uh, the Timberwolves oh. halftime show uh, in 97, and then we did uh, Impact Magic Show at Silverwood Theme Park in 98, and then we did uh, Odyssey at uh, Six Flags, Fiesta Texas in 99, and then we did cruise ships, and then we did more... Six Flags, and then we got to then we got married, and then we um, then we got the World of Magic in Branson in
0: 2001, and uh, on and on and on. So
2: that's how that happened.
0: Well, you guys have done a lot of traditional magic shows, it sounds like, but now your show has uh, darker elements to it and and involves (laughs) seance and and ghosts and things of that nature. What led you down that path?
2: Well, we've always loved this town of Eureka Springs. When we were performing in Branson, we would always come down here. And I think a lot of people in Branson come down here to get away from the, the Branson uh, experience. Because it's much more eclectic. It, this town has a, a lot of character. And, um, and then we kind of had this idea that we wanted to retire in Eureka Springs. We wanted to buy a big Victorian home and do a Eugene Berger-type spirit theater-type show. And uh, so then we met with the, the Queen Anne Mansion, which is not really a creepy old house. It's uh, like a beautiful, uh, opulent Victorian home. And so they, were, they weren't they were really opposed to the ghost thing, but they, they didn't want us to limit ourselves to that. And uh, so then we, we decided to go more to the Victorian magic show with a ghostly ending. And... Um, and the project just kind of took on a life of its own, um, and it became more and more and more exciting. We really thought that this was all going to be about ghosts, but I think it's transcended to something more than that. And I have to say that I think we're having more fun doing this show uh, than anything we've ever done before. You know, but it's heavy on the mentalism that's disguised as... Some of it is disguised as bizarre magic or ghostly stuff.
0: So you tend to get a different reaction when doing this type of magic than you do with uh, standard magic, for for lack of a better term. So do you have any really memorable experiences that you've had from audience members, or what have you seen, if not, what have you seen different in performing this style? Well, I have to say that,
2: you know, it's that uh, when people come in, yeah, sometimes people are a little misty-eyed or their eyes are welling up, at the end of the show when we tell them to think of some you know departed loved one and uh, the ghosts seem to give them that answer you know oh yeah or the, the past life regression uh, time travel um, routine that we do um, but then also it's just the people that come up after the show and like tonight a lady came up to me and she said your wife she's really a medium is she really a medium you know, because she does the second sight act, and it's 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 pretty strong. It's very strong, and she does such a nice job with it. People really believe it, and then they want to they want to they want to you know swap ghost stories and everything, and because they're really buying into it, which I I think is a great testament. I, I mean, I think it means the show is effective, right? So they don't. It's not so much oh you. It was wonderful. You guys are great, but. It's, but rather, it's like, yeah, that was awesome. And you know what happened to me? You know, it's, 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 it's really, I think. They're, they're more effective. It's, more, it's a more simple th- show, yet, intellectual. Really, they're really thinking a lot more than they are in a typical magic show, I think. They're not just, it's more than visual. Yeah, we don't call anything a trick, we call it a demonstration. <laughs> we don't call it a show, we call it an experience. And uh, I, I feel like I'm lecturing the audience at, at times, which I would never do in a comedy magic show, ever. But when you're trying to set something up, you lay the groundwork for something interac- inter- intellectual. <laughs> um, it's okay. It's accepted. They go, right, they go right along with it. It's a completely different attitude in talking to people after the show. And, I mean, maybe that's why I'm having so much fun. Yes. So...
0: Well, I, I appreciate you guys' time. Uh, enjoyed the show, and thank you listeners. And go over there and uh, check out their website. I'll have a link to it up on my website at paulprater.com. Link on it, check it out. And if you're anywhere near Eureka Springs, you have to come down and see the show. Well, we've just had a packed full podcast this month, and there is something else still I wanted to, to squeeze in, and I'll keep it fairly short. But every month I like to try to do a little something on presentation of bizarre some little tidbit or something that I've picked up and uh, something that I want to discuss this month is suspension of disbelief in your performances Uh, everybody's probably heard that phrase suspension of disbelief but that phrase was first put forward in English by the poet and philosopher Samuel Taylor Coleridge and you may be familiar with him through his poetry and if not through his poetry then perhaps through Iron Maiden who took the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner and made a song about it but uh, Coleridge was most well known for the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner that was one of his poems and if you're not familiar with Coleridge I would highly recommend that you turn on a lamp and settle into an easy chair and get a glass of wine and read a little bit of Coleridge he did some terrific poetry anyway I'm, I'm getting off track back to suspension of disbelief see Coleridge suggested that if a writer could quote infuse a human interest and a semblance of truth into a fantastic tale then the reader would suspend judgment concerning the implausibility of the narrative now listen to that that's that's really important that describes a lot of what we do as bizarre performers we're taking a fantastic tale which very well may be implausible But if we can infuse a human interest and semblance of truth, then maybe your listener or your audience can suspend their disbelief and buy into your tale. So why is suspension of disbelief important to the performer? First it's necessary for your audience you need your audience to go along with you on this ride. You need them to buy into the story and suspend that disbelief so that they can enjoy your presentation. When you have incongruities in your story, incongruities in your props, then that can be something that can become apparent. Recently there was a uh, post on the Magic Cafe about authenticity and how important is it in the bizarre section obviously and there were a lot of answers back and forth but one of the things that i think was hit on by by my friend Craig Phillips and something that i think is important is if your audience members know more about what you're trying to tell than you do you can have incongruities in your story that can become apparent and that can distract your audience members let me give you a good example if you're telling a story of, about a certain prop for instance and that prop is out of place uh, a Jack the Ripper routine let's say and you have a knife that doesn't look anything like the knives that they had back then but looks more like a Rambo knife then that's going to be an incongruity that's going to be apparent now obviously that's a little bit over the top as an example but I think it gets the point across what I'm what I'm trying to hit at now with that being said if you can explain an incongruity then I think that can be acceptable and while this is a movie I want to give you an example I don't know if you saw the Romeo and Juliet with Leonardo DiCaprio it was a very different take on Romeo and Juliet there were lots of incongruities from the original story but yet it all worked It worked very well it was very entertaining and very very visually striking so you can have incongruities but they need to be purposeful and explainable incongruities so make sure that your props and your stories Makes sense. A second reason why suspension of disbelief is important is because it will help you as an actor. I don't mind saying I'm going through an acting class. It's not something I've done before. And I found that the most important thing to help my acting is for me to suspend my own disbelief. I have to put myself in the situation that I am acting out. Not just the role, but physically. I need to be there. And this all happens in your head and that's hard to do sometimes when you have an audience looking at you when you're on a stage I can tell you from experience it's a little easier when the lights are shining on you and you can't see everyone but when you're doing close-up when you're acting and people are right in front of you it's harder but you've got to be able to get into that mindset so authentic props can most definitely help you do that as I'm sure everyone is aware actions and body language speak volumes more than the actual words you say. If you're handling an antique book from the 1800's then you're much more likely to treat it like an antique book from the 1800's. When you can suspend your disbelief, when your audience members can watch you and feel like you're actually there where you say you are, you can carry them there as well when they can buy into your character and what you're doing and the role you're playing that you've helped them suspend their disbelief and once that happens you can take them on that ride wherever you want to go. I think suspension of disbelief is very important and something all of us should strive for in our magic. Since it is Halloween and one of the favorite times of years for Bizarre I thought I would share some fun stuff with you. This is just some General information about Halloween, some Halloween facts. These are things that you may be able to use to craft your own routines. There's nothing deep or philosophical or even directly related to bizarre magic here. I just wanted to do something fun. Halloween as we know it comes from a Celtic celebration of Samhain, which marked the end of the harvest season, and also the change in the year from a time of light to a time of dark. And these are still principal aspects of Halloween and aspects that bazaars really enjoy. Bonfires played a large part in the original festivities. People and their livestock would often walk between two bonfires as a cleansing ritual, and then they would slaughter livestock for the upcoming winter and the bones of the slaughtered livestock were cast into the flames. That sounds like a great bizarre routine, although if you're slaughtering animals you might check with your health authorities first. It was also believed during this time that the souls of the deceased and evil spirits could roam around. And there was a Gaelic custom of wearing costumes and masks, and that was an attempt to copy the evil spirits, to scare them away or to placate them. And that's where our custom of wearing costumes and masks came from. In Scotland, the dead were impersonated by young men with masks, veiled, or blackened faces dressed in white. Sounds like either skeletons or ghosts. Now they had jack-o'-lanterns too, but they were a little different than what we used. They had candle lanterns that were carved from turnips, and that was part of the traditional festival. Large turnips were hollowed out, and they were carved with faces, and they were placed in the windows, supposedly to ward off the evil spirits. Now here's some fun facts for you. Halloween is the second most celebrated holiday. How about that? Uh, A fun thing you saw at carnivals as a kid and at, at the school Halloween carnivals that they probably still do now is bobbing for apples. Bobbing for apples is believed to have originated in the ancient Roman Empire in honor of Pomona, the goddess of fruit trees, and her festival is celebrated on October 31st. It's believed that if you see a spider on Halloween, that that's supposed to be the spirit of a loved one watching over you. So, the spiders, her good luck, definitely don't stomp on one. Halloween is the eighth largest card-sending occasion. There are over 28 million Halloween cards sent each year. Well, there you go. Just a little bit of fun Halloween facts, a little bit of fluff, and something interesting, and maybe you can use something in there to craft your own routine. Happy Halloween. Gather round, children. It's story time. I'm glad you came to join me. Once upon a time, there lived a man named Stingy Jack. He was known far and wide as a thief, a con artist, but above all, a drunk. So lecherous was Jack that even the devil came to hear of him. And so it was one fateful night that the devil decided to call on Jack. Stumbling drunkenly down the road, Jack came across a corpse grinning in a most disturbing and evil manner. Realizing it was the devil come to claim his soul, Jack hailed the silent stranger. When he got no reply, he said he would go willingly, If the devil would only grant him just one request, he wanted one last drink. Seeing no harm, the devil agreed, taking Jack to a nearby tavern where the two proceeded to drink until the wee hours of the morning. When it came time to settle their tab, Jack slyly asked the devil to turn himself into a silver coin so that the barman who took the money would end up with nothing because it would disappear and Jack would enjoy one last trick. The devil always wanted to enjoy a bit of mischief agreed and did as he was asked. As soon as the devil changed, Jack, true to his name, snatched up the coin and plunged it into his pocket where he also carried a silver crucifix. Unable to escape, the devil had no choice but to agree to Jack's demand that his soul be spared for ten more years. Ten years passed quickly, and sure enough, on the anniversary of his deal, Jack once again found himself staring at the devil's evil grinning face. Jack once again promised to go willingly, if only the devil would climb a nearby tree and pick him an apple, as he was now too old and frail to do it himself. One last apple was all he wanted. When the devil jumped into the branches, Jack bent down and drew crucifixes all around the tree, once again trapping the devil. This time, Jack made the devil promise never to take his soul when he died, thereby guaranteeing his place in heaven. Years later, when it was finally Jack's time, he found himself before the gates of heaven. However, due to his unsavory past and sinful ways, he was denied admission and instead sent down to hell. True to his word, the devil refused to let Jack in and turned him away. Damned to wander the earth in darkness, Jack begged the devil to help him. Grinning maliciously, the devil tossed Jack a burning ember from the depths of hell. Jack took his piece of hellfire and placed it in a hollowed-out turnip to create a lantern. Sometime after his death, farmers and peasants began seeing the eerie flame of Jacko the Lantern wandering in the dark. Those unfortunate enough to cross paths with the ghost found themselves tricked out of their lives, and sometimes their souls. It's said that every Halloween night, Jack wanders the earth, sometimes disguised as an old man, other times as a mangy dog, and every so often as a silver coin left on someone's doorstep. To ward off his malevolent spirit, people carve faces into their turnips and pumpkins, place inside a lit candle, and leave them on their front porches. Some say the crude lanterns are designed to remind Jack of his penance, while others claim that the glowing grins remind Jack of the devil's visage and force him to flee in terror. I hope that everyone enjoyed their tale, and I hope that everyone sleeps tight. Thank you for joining me this month for the study. As always, I do appreciate your listenership. I appreciate you enjoying this podcast, listening to it, and keeping it going. If you've enjoyed what you've listened to, please make sure to tell other people so that they will continue to listen. I would like the listenership to grow. I would like more people to tune in and take a listen and get interested in this field of bizarre magic. I think it has a lot to offer not only bizarre magicians, but magicians as a whole. Again, as I've said in the past, if I can ever do anything to help, please feel free to email me. You can get me at paul, P-A-U-L, at paulprater, P-A-U-L-P-R-A-T-E-R, dot com. I'd be happy to help out in any way that I can. I hope you have enjoyed the show, and I hope that you have a wonderful day frightful Halloween. Goodbye.